God is one. He's not inconsistent. He's only had one way of saving people. And he doesn't save the Jew one way and a Gentile another way. He doesn't save a Baptist and a Presbyterian and a Catholic different ways. He, if he's going to save them at all, he's going to save them all the same way. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the second half of chapter 3 of the book of Romans, we've been comparing the passage that the Apostle Paul penned that affirms that salvation is by faith alone with the second chapter of James, in which the author claims that faith without works is dead. We've seen so far that James was not contradicting Paul, rather he was affirming that true salvation will manifest itself in a changed life that includes doing good works, not that works are a means to salvation. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy further drives home the point that there is only one way of salvation, and that way is universal. Now the paragraph that follows is very, very important. It's important that you be able to explain it, Many non-Christians will use this to say there are mistakes in the Bible. Some will ask you of this text because they're trying to put verses together. And it's a, it's a section of Scripture that Christians have often asked me, well, I'm just trying to understand this. Help me to understand it because I know there's no contradictions in the Bible. So I want you to understand this portion of Scripture. Now, let me say parenthetically, even Martin Luther had trouble with this portion of Scripture. In fact, when he read it, he thought it was so opposed to the Apostle Paul and the rest of the writers in the New Testament that he believed the book of James was not inspired. He called James for a long time a right, starry epistle. Because he thought that since God can make no mistakes and since one writer contradicted all the other writers of the New Testament, that James must not be inspired by God. Of course, by the end of his life, he was able to reconcile the two texts, and he understood that there was no contradiction at all. So this is a very, very important paragraph because there are so many evangelical Christians today who say they are saved, but they give absolutely no evidence. Now, earlier he used a hypothetical illustration. Now he uses two real-life illustrations beginning with Abraham. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Yes, he was. Uh, You see, he says that faith was working with his works. As a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned, it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, do you see the quote here in verse 23? The change of typeset, if you're using the NAS, tells you it's from the Old Testament. And if you have marginal notes and you go out into the margin at verse 23, it will tell you that it comes from Genesis 15, 6. Keep that in mind. Now, look at verse 24. James concludes, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Let me again read to you Romans 3.28 where the collision, supposed collision, takes place. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works. Now we know better that there are no contradictions in the Bible. And we know that the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And you cannot have hundreds of passages in the Word of God that teach that we're saved by grace through faith apart from any works. And then to try to bleed works together with faith to call that saving faith because it is not. 
Romans, as I think most of you are coming to know, if you didn't know it already, it's one of the most detailed treatises in all of the Bible on the plan of salvation. So James says a man is justified by works. Paul says a man is justified by faith apart from any good works. Well, who's right? They're both right. Paul and James are not contradicting each other. They're complementing each other. And we need to understand how they complement each other. You say, well, how do you know they're not contradicting? How do you know they complement each other? For at least three reasons. Number one, in the first place, James is writing to Christian Jews. And he's not writing to counter what Paul was saying because Paul hadn't said anything at this point. If you were with us in our New Testament survey, James was one of the earliest books in the New Testament to be written. So he's not countering anything that Paul wrote. Paul hadn't even begun his first missionary journey when this epistle is written. Secondly, if you know Acts 15, the Jerusalem council, a council that God actually had, there's a lot of councils called by that name that God had nothing to do with, like the Council of Trent. But at the Jerusalem council recorded in Acts chapter 15, James, the half-brother of Christ, because Jesus, of course, had no human father. Someone asked me that after the first service. What do you mean, half-brother? He's the half-brother of Christ. He's an apostle. And there at Acts 15, they reaffirm together that a man is saved by grace through faith apart from any good deeds. And James is there. He's leading the conference. In Galatians 2, James extends to Paul the right hand of fellowship, indicating they were in perfect agreement. The third reason, and perhaps the most important, is the difference in terms. Both James and Paul uses the word justify, but in two entirely different contexts with two entirely different meanings. Now remember, in every language, words take on their meaning and their context. In some languages, like Greek, like English, there's some words that mean the same thing in whatever context you use. There are other words that change their meaning depending on the context. When I use the word cool, am I referring to temperature or am I referring to something that's really neat? When I use the word pool, am I referring to a carpool? Am I referring to the game of pool? Um, What am I speaking of? Context determines. Well, please understand that Paul is using the term justification in terms of declaration, whereas James is using in his context the word justification in terms of vindication, in terms of proof. So when Paul uses the term, he's speaking of the fact that God declares us, apart from anything we've done, each and every believer to be holy and righteous in his sight. He declares them to be saints. Whereas on the other hand, James is dealing with the validation of righteousness. He's saying we justify or we prove ourselves, we prove our faith by our works. Paul is dealing with inward justification. James is dealing with outward justification. Here in our passage, Paul is dealing with the means of justification. James is dealing with the marks of justification. Paul is dealing with the root of justification. James is dealing with the fruit of justification. Paul is speaking about justification before God. James is speaking about justification before men. And the words of the Protestant reformers were saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. Now, I hope you still have Romans 3. Go back there. Hold your finger. Don't lose James. We're not done. Go back to Romans 3. What I find so fascinating, if you look across the page to Romans chapter 4, James, like Paul, quote the identical passage of Scripture, but each one does it to prove something entirely different. Look at Romans 4 verse 1. 
We're going to study this in our next time together, God willing. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? What did Abraham discover? For if Abraham was justified, saved, declared righteous by works, by deeds, he has something to boast, to brag about. But he quickly adds, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And notice, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Identical quote that we just read in James 2.23 from Genesis 15.6. And to show that we're saved by grace through faith apart from any works, he says in verse 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favorite, but what's due? One of my grandsons sitting up there worked hard for me yesterday picking up sticks, and I got a dollar in my pocket, a dollar coin to give you before you leave today. When I give him that coin, I won't say, this is a gift. He'll say, granddaddy, I worked for that dollar. You owe it to me. It's an obligation. But, verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned, his faith is counted as righteousness. So, the person God counts as righteous does not work because he sees himself as missing the mark, as being ungodly, and he simply puts his faith in God who can count him as righteous. So Paul uses Abraham to say we're not saved by works. James uses Abraham to show we are saved by works. Now go back to James 2 and let's put them together. James 2 verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So James wants to show us that Abraham did not have a dead faith or a demonic faith, but he had a dynamic faith. He wants to show us that he had a faith that both worked and worshipped. And critical to your understanding of this text of scripture is to look at the order of the two Old Testament quotations, right over verse 21, there in James 2.21, right over the top of the verse, Genesis 22, all right? And then over verse 23 of James 2, write Genesis 15. If you miss the order, you'll miss the point he's making. When James looks at Abraham and he asks here in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Yes, he was. When it says in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, how do you know whether that was genuine faith apart from the fact that the Bible tells us? James says, here's how you know. Forty years later, he proved he had genuine faith, that he had a faith that both worked and worshipped when he was willing to obey God and take his uniquely begotten born son, Isaac, who's an illustration of Christ, and lay him there on the altar and put a knife through his body until God stopped him. So Abraham did not simply have a faith of words. He had a faith that worked and worshipped. And so his faith was confirmed 40 years later But why he, what he did up there in Mount Moriah. And so verse 23 says, and the scripture was fulfilled. Underline that word fulfilled. The scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he's called the friend of God. In what sense was the scripture fulfilled? Not in terms of Abraham getting saved, but in terms of Abraham proving his salvation. And so James, having stated what Abraham did, quotes Genesis 15, what he believed 40 years earlier, to show that he had a genuine faith. 
Now in verse 25, he moves to another real-life illustration. In many ways, it's even more fantastic because he looks at Rahab the harlot. And what a contrast between the two. Abraham is a Jew. Rahab is a Gentile, a Canaanite. Abraham is inside the covenant community. She's outside the covenant community. Abraham's a saint. She's a streetwalker. He's highly respected. She's highly rejected. But they both make it into God's hall of fame of faith. So we read, and in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot? Was, excuse me, and in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot? Stop right there. Rahab the harlot. <laughs> How'd you like to have that handle? Who gave it to her initially? Joshua did. Joshua 6. Joshua, who wrote the book of Joshua, refers to her as Rahab the harlot. It's stuck. It comes into Hebrews 11. It comes here into the book of James chapter 2. Here's a Canaanite woman, a harlot, who had a handle that stuck. Can you imagine that? Every time they refer to her, they call her Rahab the harlot. How would you like to go around? People introduce you. Hey, here's Joe the drug addict. Who are you? I'm Joe the pervert. You know, I mean... She's Rahab the harlot. And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, does that verse teach that when Rahab received and protected those messengers and sent them out a different way, that their lives would be spared, that she was saved by that act? Unthinkable. But what James is recording is that her faith was vindicated in the, Lord Je- in the Lord God Jehovah when she did this. If you go back and you read Joshua chapter 2, you discover that she told the spies of what they had heard 40 years earlier. How the God of Israel had split the Red Sea in half and how all of Israel had come through on dry land. And she said in Joshua 2, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And you can fill in all the details of the mighty acts of God that she heard as those camel jockeys came through her parlor and how God delivered Israel out of the land and hand of Egypt with ten mighty plagues and how the final plague was blood on the doorpost and the lintel and how God protected them and saved them and then they came to the edge of the Red Sea with the army behind them and he split it in half, they went through and then all of the Egyptian army drowned and she said, he is the Lord of heaven above and on earth beneath. How do you know whether that confession is real or just words? Forty years later, after the wanderings are over, 40 years later when she's willing to risk her life, her faith is vindicated. So he closes in verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. A faith that does not work is no more alive than a body without a spirit. Griffith Thomas wrote nearly 100 years ago, Paul and James are not soldiers of different armies fighting against each other, but soldiers of the same army fighting back to back against enemies coming from opposite direction. Paul is fighting the enemy of faith plus work. James is fighting the enemy of a faith that does not work. Both enemies are deadly. Both enemies are fruitless. Both enemies are deceptive. And both enemies are a different gospel. Now go back to Romans 3. We're done with James. All right, Romans 3, 27. So then, where is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law and what principle is boasting excluded? 
On what principle is it suffocated and locked out by by a law or a principle of faith? And so boasting, if you think about it, it's totally uninvited in the heart of the true believer. The believer understands, I have, no, I have nothing to boast about. It is totally by the grace of God, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Question, verse 29, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, he is. Anyone can come. No one has a corner on the grace of God. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God will justify the circumcised, that is the Jew by faith, and the uncircumcised, that is the non-Jew by faith, the same God is one. He's taking us back to Romans 2, that God does not have some kind of special consideration for the religious Jew who thought, as we saw in that day, they thought, surely God views us differently because we're a member of the covenant people, not like those Gentiles. And Paul wants to understand that God is one. He's not inconsistent. He's only had one way of saving people, and he doesn't save the Jew one way and a Gentile another way. He doesn't save a Baptist and a Presbyterian and a Catholic different ways. He, if he's going to save them at all, he's going to save them all the same way. There's not many paths to God. God doesn't save a Christian this way and a Hindu and a Muslim a different way. There's only one way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the thrust of Romans in all of the New Testament, as I've said it many times, is God saves you all by himself, not based on a single thing you've done or can do, or he doesn't save you at all. And so he says in verse 31, do we then nullify, do we make meaningless the law through faith? Meganoita, may it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. How do we establish the law? Well, number one, in its function, as we already saw in Romans 3.20, that the function of the law is not to redeem, but to reveal. It's like looking at your face in the mirror. It shows that you have a problem and you need a savior. It establishes the law too, and that the law of the Old Testament, as he's going to illustrate profoundly in the next chapter, taught that a man was saved by faith apart from works, and it will establish the law as we will see in Romans 8, and that when you're saved, the Holy Spirit is put in you that you might carry out the moral dictates of the law. And so do we nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish it. Now, how can we apply this text? Let me offer three suggestions. Number one, ask yourself, do I think that my good works have helped to save me? Do I think that my good works have helped to save me in any way, shape, or form? Do they help to save you? If you're thinking that way, then you've never heard the gospel before in clarity and in power. And if you've never heard it in clarity before, then you cannot embrace it. Paul will teach us so plainly in Romans 4 that understanding the gospel of grace through faith apart from works is a pre- Uh, prerequisite to true, genuine faith. You know, I meet people almost every week who tell me they're saved, and then when I ask them on what basis they are saved, they'll talk about things that they have accomplished. We had a a pastor, meet the pastor, who thought that on Thursday night. Still does, as far as I know. But a real understanding of the gospel eliminates all boasting. You see, the problem today is that people very often associate getting saved with an act. 
walking in aisles, shaking a man's hand, getting baptized, praying a prayer. But in the New Testament, it is not associated with an act. It is associated with a person, the Lord Jesus, who died in our place as a substitute. And if you've been under the impression that good works save or help save, then you've not yet come to genuine faith in Jesus Christ according to the New Testament. And I would exhort you to flee to Christ today. Some people, they spell salvation do. Do this. Do such and so. Other people spell salvation don't. Don't do this. Don't do that. God spells it done. It's finished. It's a completed act. Secondly, I would ask by application, do I have a faith of words? that does not work. Do I have a faith of words that does not work? The truth, again, don't miss it, salvation is totally by faith apart from any works, yet those who are saved do work. That's Ephesians 2.10 after 8 and 9. If you've been born again, one of the greatest ambitions you have in your life, Paul says, is to be pleasing to the Lord. One of the ways that you have a genuine faith is you want to obey God. And so I would ask you, what is your ambition today? What drives you? What wakes you up? Is it to please the Lord? Third and finally, I would ask, do I have a faith of words that does not worship? Do I have a faith of words that does not worship? Suppose the devil wanted to join Community Bible Church and the elders decided to give him an examination before receiving him. Now, Mr. Devil, I understand that you want to join CBC. Yes, I do. Well, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Of course I do. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is virgin born? I was there when he was born. Yes, I believe that. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross? I watched him die on that cross, and unfortunately, he made a spectacle of us all. Well, do you believe that he was raised from the dead? Oh, I know he was raised from the dead. I saw him. I continually see him. He's alive, all right. Well, do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming again? Oh, yes, I definitely believe that, but I'd rather not talk about that. Okay, Mr. Devil. Let me ask you another question. If we receive you into the fellowship of Community Bible Church, are you willing to be baptized by immersion? Of course I am. That's God's method of baptism. I saw the Lord Jesus baptized by immersion, and I was waiting for him to tempt him right after that. Well, Mr. Devil, if you join Community Bible Church, will you faithfully attend? (laughs) He said, I'm here every week. What are you talking about? I'll be more faithful than some of your members. In fact, I'll even sing in the choir. I wouldn't mind serving as a deacon. In fact, I'd be willing to preach. The Bible says for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Well, Mr. Devil, that's a powerful profession of faith. Let me just ask you one final question, of course. Are you willing to confess Jesus as the Lord of your life and with venom spewing out of his mouth? No, I will never confess him as Lord. Listen, friends, it's one thing to be lost because you've not yet heard the gospel. It's another thing to have demonic faith, a faith of words that does not worship, a faith that creedily is accurate, a faith that may have even created an emotional experience in your life, 
but not a genuine faith that has brought about conversion. Understand, worship in the Bible is not just coming here and singing a few hymns and listening to a sermon preach. Worship in the Word of God is giving worth to God, and it's what you give your affections to. It's what you give your life to because you see the genuine implications of sin and the wrath of God that abides on you, and you come to Christ, and you're willing to acknowledge that it's sin, that it's wrong, and it needs to be changed, and then you're born again, and everything changes. But if the devil can convince you that you are saved when you are not, again, he loves it because he has you in his clutches. Understand, God is inspiring the apostle Paul to help the Christian to defend his faith. And God is inspiring the apostle James to help the Christian to vindicate his faith. So ask yourself carefully, is my faith vindicated in a life that has changed or am I no different from a dead corpse? Remember, it was the Lord Jesus on that final day of judgment when he had before him all those professing Christians in the world. And he will say not to a few, but to many, I never knew you. Depart from me into the place prepared for the devil and his angels. What do you mean never knew me? He didn't know my name? Of course he knows your name. He's the omniscient God. He knows everything about you. Even before there's a word on your tongue, he knows what you're going to say. But in terms of salvation, not I once knew you, but I never, ever, ever knew you. And if you've not come by grace through faith alone in a way that your life has been transformed, you would do well to pay attention to Paul's admonition to test yourself to see if you be of the faith. Maybe with King David you should say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Let's stand for prayer. Now, our Father, we thank you this morning that your word is an open book to us to illuminate how you think, how you act, how you deal with people. I pray today for someone who is here who has a dead faith or a demonic faith, but not a dynamic faith who may have associated salvation and conversion with an act, but not with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And today they need to be saved, and you want them to be saved. And you said today is the day of salvation. I pray today, Father, that you would help someone in simple childlike faith to respond. Maybe that's you. Whoever will call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me. If you mean that and take God at his word, he will do it now and forever. And your life will begin to change like a baby that begins to grow gradually, slowly, powerfully. As you feed on the word of God, it will have an influence in your life. Now, Father, thank you that you've given us your word, that it's your inspired, inerrant, eternal word that we can read and understand. Help us to study and show ourselves approved of you as workmen who are not ashamed, that those of us that are beloved of God might be approved of God, useful to the master. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen. To listen again to today's study entitled A Theological Collision, Visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and look up program ROM16. You can also listen to it through our Search the Scriptures app, available through the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. 
And of course, you can always call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy. Tomorrow we move into Romans 4 and look at the salvation of Father Abraham. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.